This evening, I invite you to join me in your copy of the Holy Scripture in Psalm 50 this evening, Psalm 50. One of the great disappointments of my life, and you'll find this to be strange, to be sure, but one of the great disappointments in my life is that I have never been chosen for jury duty. How many of you have been chosen for jury duty all across the auditorium? Many of you have served as a juror, and I am jealous of you. I don't understand why nobody wants to be chosen for jury duty. That's a, they, they claim it's a terrible interruption and disruption in life, but, but it confuses me because millions of people love to watch courtroom dramas on TV. And people enjoy watching the courtroom dramas perhaps as they are scripted on TV. In other cases, they are reality TV or at least reality made for TV TV. But then there are the high-profile cases that are, are televised as news. And the first high-profile newsworthy courtroom case that I remember in my younger years was the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you remember that? And I remember that occasion. Of course, there's been many others since then. You can go to CourtTV.com and you can get your fill of all the courtroom drama you'd like if you want to watch real cases. But there's something riveting in watching the proceedings of a courtroom. For our, our innate sense of justice so wants to understand all of the terms of the case, to hear the arguments against and in defense of of the defendant there, and uh, we are hoping for justice to be done. It's compelling stuff. Well, Psalm 50 takes us into a courtroom. And here in Psalm 50, in the courtroom of Psalm 50, we will find there to be all the parts of an active case. We find a judge and prosecution and a defendant and a witness and an indictment and a verdict. However, there's something unique in Psalm 50, in this courtroom drama, this court case, different from any other courtroom scenario that you've ever seen. And that is what I've written there at the top of your notes. The prosecutor and his key witness and the judge are all the same person. So from Psalm 50, I prepared a message titled, Court is in Session. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God in, in heaven, our, our heart's desire is to be nearer to you, ever and always nearer. We pray that you would draw us to yourself, and in your mercy and your grace, you would be near to us. Lord, we thank you for the chance we have this evening to open your holy word and to, to read it, to study it. Lord, I pray that you would use it to be active in our, in our lives, to cut to the very core of our being, and to convict us where necessary and change us where necessary. We commit our study to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 50 begins in the same way that any courtroom proceeding would begin, and that's the bailiff who says to those who are in the gallery, all rise for the honorable judge, fill in the blank, is presiding, presiding, and he introduces the judge by name, and the judge takes his seat there on the bench. Look at verse number one, Psalm 50, verse one, the mighty one. God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun till it's going down. Jump to verse number four. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. 
Jump to verse number six. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. There is no question about the identity of this judge who is presiding over this case. It is the mighty one, God the Lord. The Hebrew language in verse number one literally reads, El Elohim Yahweh. That's the first phrase in verse number one. Who is El Elohim? El Elohim Yahweh, he is the mighty creator God of Genesis chapter 1, Elohim, and he is the self-existing God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3, Yahweh. If you still don't recognize or respect this judge, cheat ahead to verse 14. Verse 14 gives us another title for this judge, the Most High, or in the Hebrew, El Elyon. Psalm 50 is saying, all rise for the most high, self-existing creator of the universe, because he has summoned the heaven and the earth to be a witness to the judgment that he will render. Number one in your notes, if you're following the outline I prepared, number one, the judge is God. The judge is God. Now, even with our limited understanding of or our experience in a courtroom, we know that there are good judges and bad judges. There are strict judges and there are lenient judges. There are sloppy judges. Many times the the prosecution or the defense will customize their arguments, their cases in strategic ways to be most effective in speaking to a certain judge. Many times judges will legislate from the bench to drive an agenda. Other times there there are judges that rule unjustly or wrongly. We're always happy when we hear that there are conservative judges that are appointed to the bench, judges that are committed to constitutional rule of law. At other times, we grieve when liberal judges are appointed. And today, we would all lament the decline and the decay of jurisprudence in our country. But that is not unique in our day, the corruption of the court system. But rather, Solomon even lamented in his day, Ecclesiastes 3, in the place of justice, even there, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And so what about this judge in Psalm 50? What about God? What do we know about him as judge? Is he a harsh judge or is he a lenient judge? Is he arbitrary in his rulings as judge? Look look at verse number 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Okay, now, in a courtroom before a judge, statutes are stated. That is, the law is identified. And then charges of law-breaking are brought forward and adjudicated. You have broken the law. You have violated this statute. For God's people, Israel, the law was given at Mount Sinai. Remember the thunderings and the lightnings and and the voice of God there on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. But even though Mount Sinai was a place of law, really the origin of Old Testament biblical law, this judge doesn't come from Mount Sinai. Where does this judge come from? He comes from Mount Zion. You see it there in verse number two. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will show forth. Mount Zion is a place, folks, not of law, like Mount Sinai. Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, is a place of love. Mount Zion, or Jerusalem, is a place of grace and redemption. Mount Zion is a place that pictures mercy 
And so what the psalmist is saying to us is that this judge doesn't come from Mount Sinai, the place of law. This judge comes from Mount Zion, the place of mercy. You might fill in letter A. This judge, he is merciful. And the image of the merciful Mount Zion is beautiful. You see it there in verse number two. Now, beauty is said to be in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. However, that would make beauty subjective, a matter of one's personal preference. I would submit to you that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. If I think one thing is beautiful, you think another thing is beautiful, is it or is it not beautiful? Beauty is not subjective. Beauty must first be objective. We might not fully know it. We may not fully appreciate it. But there is objective beauty. And if you look at verse number two, the phrase there, the perfection of beauty. Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, the mercy that God demonstrated toward us that was accomplished there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem through Jesus Christ makes Mount Zion objectively the most beautiful of places whether you behold it to be beautiful or not, it is beautiful. Picture of of mercy. However, at the same time, we can't forget the picture of Mount Zion. I'm sorry, of Mount Sinai. Look at verse number three. Our God shall come, shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Okay, so verse number two, we've got a picture of Mount Zion, the mercy of God shown through Jesus Christ. But here in verse number three, we really have what's reminiscent of Mount Sinai. Listen to Exodus 19. As I just read a a few verses from Exodus 19, you're familiar with, with this scenario. Picture God's presence on Mount Sinai. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. How would you describe God, the great judge, in that case, in Exodus 19? on Mount Sinai. Historically, theologians have used the word terrible. That's letter B. He is terrible. He is merciful, verse number two, Mount Zion. And he is terrible, verse number three, Mount Sinai. Now, when we say terrible, we don't mean something terrible as in bad. I I think mushrooms are terrible, all right? I don't care for mushrooms. I don't care for mushrooms on a pizza. I don't care for mushrooms on a salad. I don't care for a salad, right? So (laughs) mushrooms are terrible. But when the Bible speaks of God being terrible or theologians speak of God being terrible, it's a reference to, to his awesomeness. Psalm 47 verse 2 says, The Lord Most High is terrible. 
Many times in the Bible, he is called the great and terrible God. Nehemiah uses that phrase multiple times in Nehemiah chapter 1. It it means wonderful. It means awesome. and, And it's manifested in the symbols of fire and wind. Listen to Hebrews 12, 29. says that our God is a consuming fire. In Acts 2, the Spirit of God was like a mighty rushing wind. And these things represent purification and and power. And when we stand before this God, this judge, we tremble in fear because he is terrible. And so the judge is God. He is merciful, pictured at Mount Sinai, verse number 2. He is terrible, pictured at Mount I'm sorry, Mount Zion. I'm going to get my mountains confused here. You keep it straight with me. He is merciful as pictured by Mount Zion, verse 2. He is terrible as pictured by Mount Sinai, verse number 3. But finally then, this judge is letter C. He is righteous. He is righteous. And and look with me at Psalm 50, verse number 4. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people, jump to verse 6, Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And the reputation of this judge, God the judge, is established by the witnesses of heaven and earth. They testify to his righteous judgments. So, folks, I might put a bracket here in my notes around letters A, B, and C. This is the consummate judge. This is the perfect judge. Merciful, terrible, and righteous. And when this honorable judge enters the courtroom, in this case, people don't rise out of respect, but they bow in worship. For he is merciful, terrible, and righteous. God is the judge, okay, in Psalm 50, then who is the defendant in our court case? Number two, the defendant is Israel. The defendant is Israel. Look at verse number five with me. Gather my saints together to me, God, the judge says. Well, what saints are those? Verse five, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God established a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and that covenant required sacrifice. In, in fact, we know it as the sacrificial system. Of course, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was, was just a shadow of the things to come, fulfilled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. But in this case, God the judge is prosecuting Israel for her law-breaking, and he himself, judge and prosecutor here, will take the stand, in fact himself, to take the stand to testify against Israel. Um, he will be the primary witness. Look at verse number 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. Okay, so we have God the judge, God the prosecutor, God the chief witness. Folks, we have an epic conflict of interest in this court case. The judge is the prosecutor. The judge is the chief witness. Is there any way that this defendant, Israel, can get a fair trial if God is playing all of these roles at the same time? Of course, that's a a dilemma even today in our judicial system. There's always a battle of bias. There's media bias, and there's racial bias, and there's religious bias. And 
In fact, this was such a concern for our country's founders that, that we have an image of Lady Justice who is blindfolded. Are you familiar with this? Lady Justice is blindfolded as she holds a scale in her hand to weigh matters, and she holds a sword in her hand to execute judgments. And the blindfold pictures impartiality. We want objectivity as the court case proceeds. And so we ask, how can this work if God is playing all of these same roles at the same time isn't a conflict of interest? The only way that a prosecutor can rightly charge a defendant and testify rightly against the same defendant and then judge rightly on the same matter that he has just presented is if the judge is a righteous judge. His person and his character and his integrity must be impeccable. Humanly speaking, we would never trust anyone to rule like this because humanly speaking, it couldn't be done. And so as the defendant, we would call for a mistrial, right? We would would call for some cancellation of the charges to be acquitted because of some funny business in the court. The judge is God, the defendant is Israel. Number three, the charge is guilty. The charge is guilty. And of course, a a critical piece of any courtroom decision is the charge, is the indictment. And often it's very nuanced. In fact, often a defendant can be charged with many different things, but the prosecution chooses a primary charge to make. And so here we look at verse number eight. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Verse 8, there's, there's a key word here in verse 8. It's a legal term for us to note. It's the word rebuke. If you're carrying the New American Standard, it's the word reprove. It's the idea of charging or indicting. The same word is also used in verse 21. If you see it there in verse 21, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you or reprove you and set them in order before your, your eyes. But here's the key. The judge in verse 8 is not indicting or reproving or charging or rebuking. In verse 21, he is. Look back again at verse number 8. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. God's people were making sacrifices over and over and over again as required by the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law required burnt offerings and sacrifices. However, the people were confused into thinking that God needed these things for himself. That was the prevailing understanding in the ancient world, that, that the sacrifices were one was making to the gods would feed the gods and sustain the gods and provide for the gods. Without the people giving God the sacrifices, God would be left without, that's letter A, confusion about their worship. Confusion. So, so God responds in verse number nine, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field, they're mine. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. And folks, God doesn't need our offerings. He already owns it all. He isn't dependent upon our sacrifices to to provide anything for him because it's all his to begin with. And so we might suffer some confusion. We, We think about our giving and we think about our worship and Why do we give him our tithes and offerings? And why do we lift up our praise and our worship? Well, God needs our money. 
in order to fund his work. And God needs our praise so that he can feel better about himself? No. There's confusion at times in our minds, and we go through the motions, and we reason that the more motions we do, the better it must be. So let's do more motions. Let's not sing one song. Let's sing two songs. Let's not have one service. Let's have two services. Let's not sacrifice one bull or goat. Let's give him as many as we can give him. And so God, the judge, is is saying, I'm not going to indict you on this charge. You're misguided. You're confused, as if I needed what you could offer me. But there's a better way. Verse 14, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. If we were to take the time and go back to Leviticus chapters 1 and 5, we, we could learn about the sacrificial system. And there are different kinds of sacrifices. There were burnt offerings and there were thank offerings. Let me tell you about the difference between burnt offerings and thanked offerings. Burnt offerings were mandatory for the covering of sin. Thanksgiving offerings were voluntary out of gratitude for what God had had done. In burnt offerings, a man takes the offering and he leaves it there. In a thank offering, a man brings an offering and he consumes it as a meal. The priests and the Levites would sit down together and enjoy the meal. In a burnt offering, man needs the sacrifice. Man needs the sacrifice. Psalm 50 tells us God doesn't need our sacrifice. He owns it all. It's his already. But in a thank offering, God wants the sacrifice, a heart of thanksgiving. And and so there's confusion here among God's people, Israel, about their their worship. And and I might illustrate it in this way. Recognize that all illustrations are imperfect, but perhaps this can help you appreciate the the dynamic of what's happening here. Perhaps someone um, comes to you um, with apologies. And someone comes to you and apologizes for being late to an appointment that the two of you had. You say, you know what, it's okay, I forgive you for being late to our appointment. But they keep on confessing and they say, I'm so sorry I was late. I got tied up with something else, I lost track of time, I didn't realize how long it would take to get here, and so I'm really, really sorry. You say, okay, I I hear you. (laughs) You're forgiven. Let's move on. Oh, but I I just feel so bad. I want to make it up to you. No, you don't have to make it up to me. Yes, I do. I do. No, you don't owe me anything because I've accepted your apology. I know, but I still feel guilty. I want to do something for you. Do you see what's happening here? Enough already, right? Let it go. Be done. You're forgiven. And folks, don't misunderstand. God hates sin. And God demands uh, punishment or payment for sin. But God wants us to go beyond our sin and recognize the forgiveness that he's granted him, granted us, so that we thank him and praise him. Hey, thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness you've granted me. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Offer to God thanksgiving, pay your vows to the Most High, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is such a great promise. And and follow this here now. The judge of the universe. 
the chief prosecutor who has testified against you is wanting to help you as the defendant. God is saying, be thankful and know that you can always come to me when you have a need. So the first group of of people here, of, of God's people, Israel, were confused about their worship. The second group of God's people were corrupt like the world. That's letter B, corruption like the world. Now, what do we know about the wicked, beginning in verse number 16, but to the wicked, God says... What do we know about these wicked or these corrupt like the world? Look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Okay. Who is God the judge, the prosecutor, testifying against the wicked? Okay. Are these people the wicked pagans and heathen of the world? Are these the Philistines? Are these the Baal worshipers? that claim God's promises and declare God's word? Look at verse 16. No, the the people, the wicked, in verse 16, are part of the covenant community in Israel. And to the casual observer, they, they looked like everyone else in the camp of Israel, but they were rebellious and they were wicked. You see, they attended the services, and they sang the songs, and they gave the offerings, and they listened to the preaching, but they were wicked and corrupt. Okay? In what ways? What characterized their corruption like the world? Number one, they hate instruction. Number one, they hate instruction. Verse 17, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. What do you do with the truth that that you were taught Romans 1 tells us that the wicked suppress the truth. On the other hand, God's people ought to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who receive the word with all readiness and they search the scriptures daily. Or the Thessalonians who received the word of God which they heard and they welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which effectively works in those who believe. But the wicked... They hate instruction, verse 17. There's something else, verse 18. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. Number one, they hate instruction. Number two, from verse 18, they enjoy evil. They enjoy evil. So these people reject what they should have accepted in verse 17, and they accept what they should have rejected in verse number 18. And once again, I would cite Romans 1, verse 32, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They enjoy the wickedness or the evil. So then, how can we know who these people are? How could ancient Israel look around the camp and identify, okay, some are confused about worship, but some are wicked like the world. How do we know who these people are? Well, verses 19 and 20, look at verse 19. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son, your very family. This is number three. They speak harm. They speak harm. James 1 tells us that if someone thinks that they are religious and bridles not their tongue, their religion is useless. 
And so there's some duplicity going on here. In uh, verse 16, they're affirming the covenant. Look up again at verse number 16. They declare my statutes. They take my covenant in your, in your mouth. They're, de- they're declaring and affirming these things. Yet at the same time, they, they shouldn't speak of those things because what else are they talking about? They're tearing others down in verse 20. Just a note before we continue. In verse 18... Look at the text, verse 18, stealing is cited. That's a violation of the eighth commandment. In verse 18, adultery is cited. That's a violation of the seventh commandment. In verse 20, if you're looking there, deceitful slander is cited. That's a violation of the ninth commandment. But this wickedness is not only the old covenant sins. This is also what New Testament Christians can be guilty of as well. Wicked like the world. Look at verse 21. These things you have done. You have broken these commandments in verses uh, 18, 19, and 20. These things you have done, verse 21, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you. I will charge you now and set them in order before your eyes. These people were wicked, they were corrupt like the world, and that they thought that God was just like them. That God would turn a blind eye, he would turn a deaf ear, and he would tolerate their corruption without objection. God was silent for a moment. What does God's silence here mean, and what does it look like? I'll offer you another illustration. And again, illustrations are often imperfect, but consider the times when a a teacher leaves the classroom. Now, my wife is a second grade teacher here at Fourth Baptist Christian School this year, and, and so I'll picture my wife leaving her second grade classroom, leaving the sweet little children on their own. Can you imagine what happens when the teacher leaves the classroom? Well, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why I can tell you is because I've been there, right? And you've been there, and when the teacher exits the classroom, the students start to chat a bit. Then they get up and move around a bit. Then someone throws something, and someone else yells at the someone for throwing something, and the little children left to their own devices begin causing chaos, right? And things digress so quickly. Why is that? Because the teacher's not there. The teacher doesn't see, the teacher doesn't hear, the teacher doesn't know, and the teacher isn't telling them not to do whatever they're doing because the teacher is preoccupied some other task. God is silent. Now look back to verse number three. Verse number three, our God shall come and shall what? He shall not keep silent. The teacher's returning to the classroom. The judge is seated on the bench, and he will speak, and he will render judgments. Court is in session. Verse 22. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Wow. Now, the one who forgets in verse 22, isn't the one who has a lapse of memory. 
I submit that the one who forgets in verse 22 is the one who assumes that God is impotent to speak in verse 21. He is the one who has created a God after his own image, verse 21. This is the one who willfully rejects God, and the consequence is horrific. God will tear them to pieces like an animal devours his prey. Remember the, the description of this judge earlier? Look at your outline there. He's merciful, Mount Zion. He's terrible, Mount Sinai. But he's also righteous. And it is righteous and just to confront and condemn and curse this sin. So what do we do? We have no choice, and I'm out of time, but to plead guilty. For we have dishonored God in our formalism, in our hypocrisy of worship. We've sinned by violating his holy law. But if we plead guilty, we're at the mercy of the court. Then what happens? What happens if we plead guilty? guilty. What will God do to us? And I would answer that by having you turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll conclude with this. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Let's pick up in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So God the judge and God the prosecutor and God the, the witness is also God the defender in Romans chapter 8. You might fill in number 4 in your notes. The Savior is Jesus Christ. And God the judge is for you because God did not spare his own son from being torn to shreds, as is described in Psalm 50 verse 21. And for that reason, God the judge is for the justified. So what we have is a God who indicts us in our sin, a prosecutor who rules um, against us in, in our sin and as a judge, and then he invites us to him in our day of trouble, and he provides his son as a defense. Psalm 50, verse 23, and then I'm done. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Folks, court is in session but give praise to God. He is the judge. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your righteousness, for your justice. Lord, we cower before your holiness and we plead guilty. But Lord, we also rise up with thanksgiving, with praise for your mercy, for justifying us because of Jesus Christ in his shed blood. May we be a people that give praise to you. I pray this in Jesus' name.